0: you guys next week. Last week we took, we took a, uh, an entire Sunday morning to, to put 1 Corinthians in the overall meta-narrative of the Bible. So um, today we're going to actually introduce the book and that's what that video was about. So next week we'll get to that. The guys at Bible Project are just amazing guys. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. I'm going to go ahead and read the text for us this morning and we're going to get right after it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Grab your seats. Let's pray. Get into the Bible this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you that the family of God is certainly not a well-oiled machine. Lord, we thank you that the family of God isn't an event that we pull off on Sunday morning. The family of God are these souls. And you, Lord, stand in the midst of us by the Holy Spirit. And in the scriptures, you guide us, govern us, direct us, and transform us. Lord, the saints that you have gathered here this morning... I ask that we would become a kingdom culture in the midst of a corrupt culture. Lord, that as we listen to you and learn from you, as we are loved by you and fall more in love with you, that like leaven in the loaf, the goodness of God, the purposes of God, the will of God would rise up in this culture in the South End. We pray for all the churches that are opening their Bibles this morning. We pray for all the saints, our brothers and sisters scattered throughout this city. Lord, today we join in with literally millions, if not billions of Christians in this 24-hour period who look to the book, who worship, who respond to you, And Lord, we believe because you've promised us it is the case that one day, as the waters cover the sea, your glory will be known throughout a new heaven and a new earth. Culture will be fully redeemed. Creation will be made brand new. We will be fully human, fully ourselves with no deformities. May that hope break in here this morning through the word and through worship May you transform us and I pray earnestly if there are the religious in this gathering space today that you would convert them unto relationship. For those who are considering what their purpose in life is today, Father, may you call them. May we be a city on a hill, a light to the world, salt, a preservative in this place. We give you all glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's have a little conversation this morning about culture to take us through our text in our time together. Webster's defines culture this way, saying culture is the beliefs, the customs, the arts, the practices, etc. of a particular society, group, place, or time. So what we need to understand about culture is that Every community of humanity throughout history from the beginning of time has lived within and created some sort of culture. Every set of humanity throughout history has had a particular set of beliefs and customs and behaviors and arts and practices that defined who they were, a common cultural vocabulary, a common cultural value set, a common cultural belief. Interestingly enough, all through the history of human cultures, there have been culture creators, culture makers. In the West in particular, these culture creators usually are eccentrics. They tend to be progressive in their thoughts. They tend to be new idea generators. Sometimes they're just full-on rebellious. Sometimes they're brilliant leaders. Sometimes they're intellectual savants. Sometimes they're musical creatives. But they're these folks who don't like the status quo. They want to stick it to the man, so to speak. And they are constantly generating new ideas, they are constantly challenging what has always been, and as these culture creators challenge the norms and the status quo and the standards of particular cultures, they gain a following, early adopters of their ideas and their practices and their beliefs and their values, and so they lead the way either intellectually, musically, creatively, politically, leadership-wise... They lead the way in transforming the particular culture in which they live. And once these early adopters become large enough in population, there's a critical mass that is reached where suddenly it's as if the dam breaks open and culture completely transforms. Let me give you a simple illustration of this. Let's talk about tattoo culture. When I was born almost 40 years ago, I'm 39 years old, Tattoos were known to be only upon sailors and prisoners and people of that sort. They were the characters of rebellion, they were the real stick it to the man type people, didn't want to go along with the status quo. And somehow some way, these prisoners, these sailors, these cultural rebels, these progressive thinkers with art on their bodies gained early adopters people who thought to themselves, that's cool, I'd like a tattoo. And slowly but surely, more and more people began to get tattoos to where we find ourselves today where a a critical mass has been reached. The culture has shifted in reference to tattoos. They're no longer only on sailors and prisoners, but they're also on pastors (laughs) and people that you would never expect to have tattoos because the culture now has actually adopted a mind frame about tattoos that is different. And these progressives, these rebels started that process, early adopters followed in that process, and a critical mass was reached and the culture was changed. Culture is constantly being influenced. Particularly in democratic Western cultures where we have liberty and autonomy, and we're not a shame-based culture based on family ideals. We're based on the individual. So our culture is constantly being transformed politically, socially, musically, organizationally, business, family, churches. Culture is constantly being transformed. Now, that brings us to our time together this morning. If I were to ask you, who would you say, are the top three most influential culture makers, culture creators in Western humanity? We might say Aristotle. We might say Socrates. We might say Churchill. We might say Martin Luther King Jr. We might say Oprah. (laughs) But I would argue that next to Jesus Christ, St. Paul, the Apostle Paul, the man who wrote this book, is in the top three most influential, most powerful, most definitive categories of culture makers and culture creators. And so what we're going to talk about this morning in these first three verses. First, I want you all to, to meet Paul, the culture creator. I have spent now almost 20 years trying to understand Paul, reading his writings, studying his missionary journeys, trying to get into his mind, and I can't wait to meet the man. He was an intellectual savant. He was a strategic thinker. He was brilliant and zealous and passionate, and I simply can't wait to meet him in real life, but I want you to meet him today. Second, we'll look at the culture that was in Corinth, the city that we're studying and how it compares with the culture here in the Seattle metro, and we'll close this morning by learning that we as a church are actually a culture-creating engine. This little tiny group of people right here is a culture-creating engine. Let's look at Paul first, the culture creator, and let's ask these questions. Why and how was Paul, St. Paul, why was this man so influential in changing the face of human understanding, and changing the belief sets and the values of an entire planet of people? This little Jewish nobody from the middle of nowhere, why and how did he do that? Let's meet Paul. Paul was formerly known as Saul the Pharisee, and he was a Roman citizen of of high social standard. He was renowned, Saul was, for his religious vigor and his zeal. Saul trained under one of the kind of premier professors. If you had a world-famous University of Washington professor, Paul trained directly under him in, in this rabbinic school under a man named Gamaliel and he was somewhat of a somewhat of a prodigy he was a fast-growing smart kid and people when they looked at Saul said this kid's going somewhere he's going to do something he's a mover and a shaker so he was extremely zealous Paul in his own autobiography in Philippians chapter 3 said this about himself he said I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could Indeed, if others have a reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault." So this man, Saul, his ethnic pedigree was perfect. His social standings were high. His religious zeal and passion was noted by his peers. He was a recognized, up-and-coming mover and shaker. And we first meet the man, Saul, in Acts chapter 7. You don't need to turn there. He's standing, holding the coats of men who are picking up rocks, And these men are throwing rocks at the first martyr, a man named Stephen who had preached his one and only sermon about Jesus and upset Saul's peers, Saul's colleagues, these Jewish Pharisees who throw rocks at Stephen until he dies. And Saul stands there approving of the death of Stephen, holding the coats of the men who were stoning him to death. By the time we get to Acts chapter 9, this man Saul Zealous, high-standing Roman citizen, religiously zealous, is an animal tearing into the church, ripping it apart. He's on the way to Damascus to imprison more Christians, and on the way to Damascus, we learn why he was so influential we begin to garner an understanding of how this man changed the face of humanity because he met with the creator, the risen savior of humanity on that road to Damascus. And this man, Saul, in meeting Jesus in Acts chapter 9, is radically converted. Conversion in the Bible means transformation, total change. Saul falls on his face before the risen Jesus Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Why are you kicking against the goads and the old King James? Why are you fighting my purposes, Saul? And he repents, and God saves him, and that radical conversion turns him 180 degrees in this new direction, and in Paul's conversion, we see a radical reorientation of his zeal, his passion, his works, his ideas, everything becomes centered on Jesus. God was taking the initial gifts and wiring and personality set of Saul and transforming it and converting it to use him for his glory as the Apostle Paul. Paul was so influential, not only because of his radical conversion, this total transformation, this complete reorientation of his life, he was so influential because the calling that he received was real from Jesus. We read it there in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. Paul called by the will of God. Paul understood his calling to be non-negotiable. It was not of men. He was no longer trying to please people. Paul was no longer trying to impress his peers with his savant intelligence and his theological acumen. No, Paul understood that he had been appointed by the creator of the universe to be an apostle To serve Jesus, apostle literally means sent one, a missionary. And because Paul was so sure of his calling, though he was shipwrecked, beaten, betrayed, though the majority of his churches disregarded his authority, he never stopped serving Jesus. His calling was so real so non-negotiable that nothing would stop him from moving forward in obedience to what Jesus had called him to. And what I respect the most about this man was he left what the world would say was success for his calling. He left becoming the up-and-coming book writer, professor, famed and renowned thinker and leader. He left it all to serve this strange sect of Judaism this weird group of people that worshipped a man that they said was crucified as a criminal and raised from the dead. His calling took him on the low road away from societal success and he gladly said, I will serve Jesus being unseen, beaten, betrayed, shipwrecked, and broken because I've been radically converted. And it was this that made Paul so influential in changing the face of humanity, this indomitable, this this indefatigable, this unstoppable calling of Paul was used to bring about the transformation of you and me. And third, we see that Paul was so influential because he always relied on his community. We see there in verse one again that he was Paul, the apostle, called by the will of God, and his brother, Sosthenes, Sosthenes. My dear friend, Dr. Paul Dean, at one point, put together all the names that he could find in the New Testament that at some point had some association with the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys. That team numbered over 90 people. The Apostle Paul was not a lone ranger. He was so influential because he understood and relied upon team and community. He understood that A new society of new humanity had been created through the Holy Spirit and he always had team members around him, early adopters of his ideas and his values. And those early adopters went out and increased until that population reached critical mass. And so Paul changed the face of human culture through radical conversion, this real calling, and by relying on his community. Let's ask three reflective questions for ourselves from the life of Paul before we move on to our second point this morning. Number one, consider this, think deeply about this. Have I been radically converted? You see, on the face of everything, Paul looked like the premier person of religion. He had a Bible on his lap, he was at church every Sunday. He was serving, he was going, he was doing, he was recognized, and he was hellbound. He was not a servant of Jesus, he was a servant of religion. And so we need to ask ourselves as Western Christians are we merely religious, or has everything in our life been radically, totally reoriented around Jesus as the center? When we think about our lives, when our minds are quiet and still and nobody knows what we're thinking, what is at the center of our thoughts? Radical conversion brings about a total transformation and a complete reorientation of our goals, our dreams, our objectives, our perspectives, our worship, our ways. Everything has now at its centerpiece Jesus and his will in our lives. Number two, reflective question for us this morning just to consider. How do I fulfill my calling? Paul was called, and we see here, as we'll learn next week, we've been called to be sanctified. We have a personal calling in our lives. How do we fulfill our own calling? I want to say this pastorally. One of my greatest concerns for us as affluent, comfortable Christians is that we're going to find ourselves on our deathbed And we're going to realize I wasted my life. I wasted my life. I never got serious about the calling God put in my life. And so I did the church thing. I occasionally dusted off the old Bible because that's what you're supposed to do. And I tried to lift up my prayers. But my energy and my focus, my calendar and my budget, they were determined at the center of them were things that, now that I'm on my deathbed, they really don't matter. There's a deep pastoral concern for me as a pastor watching the church in the United States that so many Christians, yes, born again, yes, bound to heaven, will be laying there on their deathbeds going, I wish I would have. I wish I would have spent more time understanding, thinking, pursuing. Now, this idea of calling doesn't mean that we're all going to be apostles and go preach it to the pygmies somewhere in Guadalajara wherever, right? Calling in the Bible means that now our work has a whole new meaning for us. It's not just a paycheck to get ahead. It's a strategic place that God the Holy Spirit has sent us to bring kingdom goodness into it. In fact, when we meet Paul in Acts chapter 18 in the city of Corinth, you know what he's doing? His day job. His his Joe Blow blue, blue, blue-collar job. He's, he's a tent maker, and he hooks up with a guy named Aquila who was also a tent maker. And Aquila becomes a Christian, and Paul's a Christian, and so they say, let's start up a tent-making business together, and let's preach the gospel in Corinth. Their job was a means to fulfilling the calling of preaching the gospel and transforming the culture of Corinth. Our calling also doesn't have to be this angelic chorus, I've called you to this grand purpose. Echo, 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 echo oftentimes the calling of a christian is unseen unnoticed dear sister your calling in this season may be changing diapers and the lord as silly as this sounds as stinky as this sounds the kingdom is as much in that poopy diaper as in the preaching this morning you see when we understand our calling It's the small little things in where we are in this season that God begins to use planting seeds of cultural transformation, kingdom reality in a corrupt place that brings transformation to everything. Have I been radically converted? Cry out to the risen Savior. Find that assurance and if you don't have that assurance, cry out until you have it. How do I fulfill my calling? Well, I seek and reorient my entire life around Jesus. And then third, like Paul, reflective question this morning, who's my community? Who is my team? Who am I relying on and who's relying on me? Who am I talking to and who is talking with me? What team am I a part of? How am I gaining early adopters of my values? And how am I and who am I following an early adopter of their values? Because that is what begins to multiply cultural transformation in the city of Corinth, and that is what multiplies cultural transformation in the city of Burien and the South Puget Sound. Let's move on. Let's look at the culture of Corinth, the city itself, and compare it to Seattle culture, the South Puget Sound culture that we live in. Paul, of course, was a strategic thinker. Paul was, without a doubt, without question, a, an absolutely brilliant leader. And what Paul did is he chose the cities that were cultural makers, cultural hubs. So for us, Paul would have chosen Vancouver, B.C. Paul would have chosen Seattle. He may have chosen Bellingham. You have the campus up there where, where a lot of left liberal thinkers are producing a lot of culture for the West Coast. He would have chosen Portland. He would have chosen San Francisco. He would have chosen L.A., San Diego. Why? Those were primary cultural hubs where what the rest of the population was believing and basing their values on was being generated in those strategic centers of cultural creation. And so Paul chose Corinth because Corinth was a port city sitting on the Aegean Aegean Sea. It, It was on an Isthmus, and so it was a very populated city, and it was a city of massive trade. It was a thriving port It was also a Roman colony, and so Paul was very strategic in the way that he went into this place, this city that had thriving wealth, thriving trade, thriving commerce, and in so many ways, it was just like Seattle, just like the Puget Sound Metro, a port city that the economic engines of Boeing and Costco and Amazon were were filling the city with people, and not only any kind of people, not only professionals, but because of the economic engines that were in Corinth and because of the economic engines that are in the South Puget Sound or the Puget Sound region in general, people from all around the world would travel to Corinth to find work, to pick up on what was going on in the city. Just like here in the Puget Sound, where we have 70 different language groups represented. In Highline High School, we have 60 different language groups represented. People are traveling here from all around the world to get in on what's going on in this particular metropolis. As well, the Corinthians and the city therein celebrated what was called the Isthmian Games. So, on the first and the third years between the four years of the Olympiad, they had these sports events. And they were sports worshipers. And so every Sunday, they would have their Hawks jerseys on, and they would be doing their Hawk dance, and they would be excited about the big game. And when the Mariners came up, they would slump their shoulders and try to change the conversation, (laughs) just like us. They were recreation worshipers. They were comfort worshipers. They were entertainment worshipers. What would be the newest play that would be going on down at the theater? What would be the newest (coughs) comedy that we would have to go and see? The newest tragedy we would have to go and cry about? As well, Corinth was a super spiritual city. With this influx of every tribe, tongue, and nation, with this economic engine driving affluence and wealth, They were super spiritual. There were multiple pagan gods that were worshipped within the region, but the primary god of Corinth was Aphrodite. So overlooking the city was the temple of Aphrodite, and there in the temple were literally thousands of priests, and those priests were actually both male and female sex slaves. They were conscripted against their will for the most part, as far as we understand. Some of them may have been willingly serving in those capacities, but they were essentially prostitutes. So overlooking the city of Corinth is this temple of debauchery and sexuality and perversion. And though we may not have a temple overlooking the Puget Sound, the primary religion of our city is sexuality and perversion. It's why between the I-5 corridor in Portland and Seattle, we are one of the topmost cities for Sex trade and sex slavery. It's going on right under our noses. Right now, 14-year-old girls are being sold on Pack Highway because the city worships sex and perversion. And it was into this filth, it was into this culture that Paul strategically says, I'm going to plant a colony of heaven. I'm, gonna, I'm going to plant an outpost of the kingdom a bulwark of what is right in the midst of this pollution and corruption in the midst of this broken culture I am called I am not going to turn from this I am going to center my life in this to transform this culture by planting a church in this city let me give to you briefly and we'll move on three wrong ways of thinking about how we exist in this culture here in the Puget Sound, and then the Pauline way, the way that Paul thought about the church existing in the Puget Sound culture that we've been strategically placed in. Number one, when we look at the culture of Seattle with its economic engine and our worship of sports and entertainment and recreation and our sexuality and our hyper-spirituality, Christians can react to that culture by becoming what I call cut-and-run Christians we escape. We flee from this culture. We say, I'm only going to live with Christians in relationship. I'm only going to go to my Christian school. I'm only going to listen to my Christian music. I'm only going to use Christian words. I'm only going to eat Christian bacon and eggs, and I'm only going to eat what. We get crazy, and we enclave. We separate ourselves from the culture, and we escape. We hole up in caves, and we just wait for Jesus to return and wipe out all the wickedness around us. Paul didn't understand cultural transformation that way. Paul did not cut and run from the Corinthian culture. Paul went right smack dab into the center of it and began preaching the gospel, preparing an outpost of the kingdom, a colony of heaven in the midst of it. Number two, second way that we can wrongly react to the Puget Sound culture around us. The last five years have seen paradigmatic moral revolution and shift in ways that we can't even... I honestly, I still can't get my head around some of the transformation that has come culturally around us. Even in the last two years, my head is spinning with it. And there is a righteous anger that can rise up in our hearts. But a wrong way of living in this culture is to condemn it. To sit with our self-righteous finger pointed at all of the rules and all of the debauchery and all of the brokenness and say, to hell with all of you. I'm holier than you are. I've got Jesus and you don't. Damn you. To sit and condemn the culture with a self-righteous judgment is to miss the mark of actually being an outpost of the kingdom that is full of mercy and full of tenderness and full of grace. Third way that we can be wrong, living in the South Seattle area, living in the Puget Metro, Puget Sound Metro, We can cut and run. We can escape and only be listening to our Christian stuff and eating our Christian food and hanging out with our Christian friends. We can become self-righteous and condemning and angry and wear our our banners and put our stickers on our cars and have our Facebook rants. And as I've said before, if you're a member of Taproot, please don't say anything stupid on Facebook. (laughs) Just stop posting on Facebook. That's not the place to condemn people. Third, we can become a compromising Christian culture. Which in Seattle, this is probably the most common. Well, does the Bible really say that? I don't know. If you have Paul say this, and if you justify this, and if you juxtapose that over there, and you take some cultural understanding here, and you do a whole bunch of mental gymnastics, the Bible doesn't really say that. So it's not a big deal. (laughs) It is a big deal. To compromise with this culture and to relinquish obedience is to take the outpost of the colony of heaven and pollute its water. It's to destroy it. It's to poison it. And we're seeing this happen in churches all over the place. Paul's idea for us in this city, in this region, was to be a commissioned Christian culture. Like Paul, we understand ourselves to be strategically placed right where we are in our workplace, in our neighborhood, radically converted, called with a community around us. That's us here on Sunday morning. And we don't compromise with this culture. We labor prayerfully to winsomely love this culture and not condemn this culture in its blindness. And we don't cut and run from this culture. We are commissioned to be in it. Now let's close with our third point this morning. How does the church actually create culture in its commissioned place. Slide number three. How does the church create culture in its particular strategic place that it has been put? Paul was planting culture-redeeming, culture-reforming, culture-creating engines in the city of Corinth, and that's what the church is. In this room is an engine, and it's filled with the fuel of the Holy Spirit, The steering wheel is the scriptures itself. And we sit in this car together, and it lights up, and we are commissioned as a culture-redeeming, culture-reforming, culture-creating reality in the midst of this pollution, in the midst of this corruption. Like we talked about last week, we're to go forth, be fruitful, and multiply, what? Shalom. We're a garden people living in communion with our God, walking in the cool of the garden with Him in our hearts, and we go out and multiply shalom in the way that we love each other, in the way that we have conflict with each other, and the way we communicate with each other, and the way that we forgive each other, and the way that we live life together as a culture-creating engine. So how does this actually happen? From our text, we'll take our points. Number one, it happens through our sanctification. Read there in verse three. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified is a very important word. Sanctification is a very important word. It's a big Bible word that means set apart. It means... Transformation. It means change. The moment you're radically converted and you become a Christian, you say, Jesus, I'm making you the center of my life. God, the Holy Spirit, indwells you personally and begins to transform your desires and your beliefs and your behavior. That's a process that's ongoing for all of Christian life. From the moment we're born again to the moment we die and are resurrected to see Jesus, we're in this process of sanctification. It's what Eugene Peterson would call a long, slow obedience in the same direction. For some of us, that transformation comes quickly in certain areas. In other areas of our lives, it's literally our whole life that we're slowly being transformed. Our belief is being transformed. Our desires are being transformed. And so now we go out as a new humanity living, as God always intended, fully human, you are becoming fully you. That's what sanctification means. It's you no longer deformed. It's you no longer with wrong beliefs that dictate bad behavior. It's you with right beliefs that transform your behavior. It's you becoming fully you in the midst of a bunch of yous that are becoming fully you. And so the church begins to transform and influence the culture around it because we don't go out and cut and run from the pornographic culture in our city. We don't go out and condemn the pornographic and the perverse culture in our city. We don't go out and compromise with the perverse culture in our city, saying, It's not a big deal. You can have sex with whoever you want and however you want, whenever you want. We don't compromise that way. We don't condemn, How dare you have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. We don't cut and run. Get away from the perverts. Get away. We commissioned, we are commissioned to go, and the reason that sex is between a man and a woman within marriage is because God is all about sex. God loves it. He thinks it's wonderful. He gave it as a gift, but we redeem it, and we become a culture within the culture that says, here's how full human beings exercise and practice the gift that God has given us in sexuality. It's in covenant union between a man and a woman. The more of us that are early adopters of that value system and understand that belief, the more it multiplies. And those who have been beaten and betrayed, those who have been raped and torn apart, those who have been molested by a perverse sexual culture can come into this culture, this community, and they can see a community of humanity saying, we're not running from sex, and we're not condemning sex, and we're not compromising with non-biblical sexual practices. We're actually having prayerfully, and I say this, you know, just full of faith, we're actually having a lot of sex within marriage the way God intended it. And it's good and it's beautiful and there's joy. And this becomes an outpost, a colony of heaven that influences the city around us, our neighbors and our friends. I just love when I meet a young couple and they come to me and they're just, they're struggling with not having sex with each other because all of their friends are like, why don't you just move in together? You guys gotta figure out if you really know each other well enough. And they're fighting that. They're standing, that's a strategic outpost of the kingdom that's redeeming culture in that place. We don't cut and run from money. Oh, money's bad. Get away from money. We don't condemn money, and we don't compromise with money, making money our center, making money and affluence our purpose. No, as Christians now, we understand that God has redeemed money. He's given it to us as a gift. It's not really ours, so we give generously. We pray for the prosperity of our city. I hope that you guys, all the empty businesses here in Burien, when you walk past them, lay hands on them and pray that God would bless a businessman to get into them. Pray for restaurants. Pray for for businesses to thrive in this city because we want to see our city prosper. We want to see our city flourish, and we want to be generous in the way that we give away our money to the church and the way that we give away our money to the poor and the way that we help people. The church is no longer a community that's defined by ethnicity. The fact that we have black and Mexican and Asian and Korean and white churches, I think is coming to a close. You know, I, I'm, I think that we're gonna see the end of that with my son's church, my, the generation of my son's church. I think that we're gonna see critical mass reached where I'm praying that my son, or at least my grandson and my granddaughters will say, did you guys really have black churches? Like, how did that work out? Because that's weird. You know? Did you guys really have ethnically based churches? Because the church is in this next season is no longer defined by, we, we no longer have at our center and as our commonality, our ethnicity, or our cultural preference. We no longer have our economic, did you guys really have upper middle class churches and poor churches? That's weird. James would actually rebuke that very aggressively. We're no longer economically defined by each other. We're no longer, oh, well, they're the, they're the smart church with high levels of education, and they're the not so smart church. The church at its center becomes a cultural redeemer and a culture creator because at our center is this calling of Jesus, this confession of Jesus, which is the second way that we create culture. We put at our center the fact that we are sinners forgiven by grace, called to be saints. And so now our ethnicity and our education, our economic status, our preferences, our what we once considered cultural non-negotiables are laid down for the sake of just being close to Jesus, being with Jesus together. And the world is able to, the city is able to look on. Prayerfully, our neighbors are able to look on. Ethnic division is, people are able to look on and say, I want to be part of that, I want to be available for that. I want to be part of that culture. And this all comes through this confession we see here in verse 3. Those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And then finally, how is culture created through the church? It's through grace and peace. Interesting wordplay that Paul does here. Some scholars think that what he does is he takes a, a pretty common uh, a, epistolatory, a pretty common introduction, kind of like whenever we open up our email, hi or dear so-and-so. This was a common thing in the, in the Greek letters. And some scholars surmise that Paul takes this common opening and he, and he shifts it and he makes it a culture creator by saying, charis and shalom, like we talked about last week. Through God's grace, peace is multiplied in this culture and it's carried out. Grace and peace. It's grace that creates culture through us. When we embrace grace for each other, when we are able to live in conflict with each other and then find forgiveness through grace, peace and shalom multiplies. When we are humble, and we serve each other, and we see each other as broken sinners who fail each other, who constantly are wronging each other, but Jesus is at our center, peace multiplies out into the city, and the culture is transformed when grace works within a marriage, when grace works within our own emotional dispositions, when grace works in our workplaces because God has come to us as a strategic leader, as a culture creator, the ultimate culture creator, and he has entered into our suffering. He's entered into our corruption. He's entered into our brokenness. He's taken it upon himself in Jesus, and he's risen above it now victorious over it, when that is at our center, when that belief system is at our center, through God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we become fruitful and multiply. In our time of communion this morning, and Will, you guys can come on up. I want us to just pray corporately together that God would, through us, create culture in the South End. You know, many of you have been here for a while, and these are things that we talk about often. We're praying to be a multi-ethnic, multicultural revival in the South End. We're praying to be a people who, who are seeing the transformation of our city. This past week, I was in class, and we were studying revival. And something stuck out to me. One of the stories that one of the profs was telling was of the Welsh revivals. And in the Welsh revivals of the the late 1800s, early 1900s, so many people became Christians. So many people in those areas became Christians that it's documented by secular historians that the crime rates went down. One of the stories was hilarious. The coal miners' horses... They could no longer serve the coal miners the way that they had with such, you know, vigor because the coal miners' language changed. They quit using bad words, and the horses couldn't understand what the coal miners were saying. And so there was a diminishment of the economy because the language was changed. Dream with me here for just a moment. Let's think about what this could be. And, and I want you to pray earnestly. What part do I play in this? What part, what sacrifice is God calling me to to see this new culture created and multiplied in this city? What is my part? What is my calling in this? Dream with me of not only our church, but, but Tim over here at Highline, whatever kid's gonna end up taking over Evergreen, Mike, back here at EV Free, dream with me of the church in this city so loving each other, so caring for each other. Dream with me of black and white and Mexican and rich and poor with us gathered in here, in home gatherings, in other churches. Yes, we hurt each other, but forgiving each other and and letting go of our cultural preferences and letting go of our identities and seeing ourselves as broken sinners before a savior. Dream with me and pray with me that, like Paul, we wouldn't cut and run from this city, that we wouldn't compromise with this city, that we wouldn't condemn this city, but we would see ourselves as commissioned in this city. And I pray and I ask you with just deep pastoral conviction, we'll have to fight for this. Satan wants to destroy this. Churches are constantly being usurped by the sifting of Satan. Churches are constantly being split by conflict within them and, and a lack of humility on all parts involved in that conflict. Churches are being shut down. Churches are compromising. We have to, on a morning like this, in the book of 1 Corinthians as we travel through it, make a decision today. I want to know my commission and my calling and I want to fight for it by faith. That God's grace would be multiplied. That shalom would be multiplied out into the world. And so as we come this morning I'm going to say this as clearly as I can. We are coming to the communion table. If there's some sort of sin that you're compromised with this morning let today be a day of repentance. It's grace that will multiply shalom in your life that will break the kingdom in. Today, if you have something against somebody else in this room, before you come to the cross and that broken body and that spilled blood, go and be made right with your brother. Go and be made right with your sister that there might be the overflow of grace and peace that this culture would be satisfied with the fullness of God's presence And that in this little tiny space, you know, 150, 175 people, however many people are in here listening today, the kingdom would break in 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 such small measure. But that's the leaven that goes out into the loaf of culture and slowly but surely begins to transform it. And let's pray together for revival. That God the Holy Spirit would so graciously be poured out upon our cities, so graciously be poured out upon our churches, that we would see the sex slavery end in the Puget Sound. That we would see, as I've been praying lately, the dope dealers and the drug dealers absolutely converted, the pornographers converted. I've been praying daily since January 1 that God would drive wickedness out of our city, and it began as a condemning prayer. Just drive those wicked people out of our city, and it's evolved, thankfully, into God save them. Let's pray that revival would come and the business owners would no longer just be there to get a paycheck, but they want to contribute and give and serve this community. There'd be no more embezzlement, no more stealing. If my car gets broke into one more time, I'm desperate for revival, (laughs) right? Let's pray that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. I've prayed for years now since we moved to Seattle that God would make our cities that are desolate as the Garden of Eden. This is Ezekiel chapter 36. That God would take the cities that are desolate in the South End and make them as the Garden of Eden and that the surrounding cities, the nations would look on and they'd say, that is the hand of God. We are culture creators in Christ. So as we come to communion this morning, you're commissioned. Receive your calling. Embrace it. Walk in it because it's grace that fuels it and it's grace that brings us to the end as we'll, see, as we'll see next week. Let me pray for us. Father, as we come to the communion table this morning, your grace is what multiplies peace in our hearts. For the one this morning, Lord, who has that, that sin that they've just been sitting with and and justifying and excusing. Today, Lord, may they just come and be washed in grace. It doesn't matter if this is the eight millionth time that they've confessed this sin to you. Your forgiveness and grace is more than enough to satisfy. Lord, for the marriages in this room where there's conflict right now, there's hurt, may each of those marriage partners absorb the cost of forgiveness because you absorb the ultimate cost to forgive us. Lord, there's always conflict in the relationships of the church. There's always conflict, because we're broken. And I'm begging you for our church, God, that the Christians in this room would rise up and say, I'll do whatever it takes to not be in conflict with my brother my sister. Lord, help us not to look at the other person and say, when they do this, then I'll respond. No, Jesus, you didn't do that for me. For me, Lord, you, you didn't demand that I meet some standard so you could die on the cross and forgive me. No, you, you said, while well, I was yet a sinner. You would absorb the cost, and so help us to absorb the cost. Lord, we pray. I pray for the men and women in this room who are currently using pornography, fueling and, and actually using their money, Lord, to fuel the sex trade, worshiping at the temple of Aphrodite, seeking, Lord, some sort of shalom and intimacy that will never fulfill. I pray that today you'd set them free. Father, I pray for the, the man, the woman who's just been unsure, just wants to understand that today you would grant them understanding as they'd see their workplace as a fruitful field where they can just be leaven in the loaf, where they can be a redeemer of that culture in that workplace, working hard, serving, making tents, doing what they do, contributing good to this community. And we pray for businesses in our city, Lord, all the empty business places. We pray that you'd fill them up with thriving businesses, thriving restaurants. Lord, we pray that the streets would be filled with converted saints. And we are praying for revival this morning here at the foot of the cross. God, that you would send the Holy Spirit upon us, Holy Spirit that you would be poured out upon Burien, Renton, Auburn, White Center, Lord, up through Seattle, down through Federal Way, down through Puyallup, up and down the I-5 corridor, we're praying for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, asking you through grace to multiply peace and take these cities that have been desolate, this culture that has been corrupted and polluted with death and deformity, And make it as the Garden of Eden, a people walking with their God in shalom, in peace, in sexual rightness, without shame, without fear, without guilt, masks taken off in perfect unity. God, we're praying for a multi ethnic, multi economic, multicultural revival in this area. And help us to keep our hands off of it and watch you do it and be part of it. And I do pray for my church in this generation, my son's church. Should you tarry my grandson, my great-grandson, my great-great-grandson's church? I pray, Father, that the coming generations of the church in the West would be such culture makers and they would with surprise say, did you realize that Grandpa lived in a church culture where there were black and white churches? Isn't that strange? God, I pray that that conversation would happen should you tarry. And so we humble ourselves before you today We confess our sin. We worship you. We respond to your grace, not with fear and not with performance, but just with surrender. Fill this space with your Holy Spirit. Fill our hearts with your presence. Walk with us in the cool of the garden as you come to us and say, where have you been? I'm here for you. Let's stand and we'll sing.